Welcome to the Fan Engagement Pod. This is our first in-person recording done at the Royal Society of the Arts in John Adams Street, just off the Strand in London, where I'm a fellow. Apologies for some background noise at times. This episode is with Catlaw and Martin Cloak, who until last year were co-chairs of the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust and who formally stepped down from the board this year. If you want to know what meeting with Spurs CEO Daniel Levy and the rest of the executive board was like, how they dealt with the aftermath of the European Super League car crash and um, why they stopped their regular board-to-board meetings with the club, this one's for you. The collaborative efforts between groups like theirs and supporters' trusts at rival clubs like Arsenal and Chelsea was and remains a great tonic to the excesses of the modern, often confected rivalry between fans off the pitch. As Supporters Direct founder Brian Lomax always said, what unites us off the pitch is greater than what divides us over 90 minutes. I've known and at times worked with both for many years and have always liked and respected their honesty, application and professionalism. Their desire to always do what they judged to be the right thing and to do it well has never been in question. Cat is still involved with the FSA nationally and was also for a period uh, on the FA Council. They formed part of the Premier League group of supporters trust that I helped establish and oversee at Supporters Direct, which was the engine for the successful campaign to reduce away ticket prices in the Premier League and also numerous pieces of policy and other campaigning work we did in the game around regulation and fan engagement and in other areas such as assets of community value. By the way, if you are interested in the World Society of the Arts, the RSA, including how to become a fellow or to use their facilities, go to www.thersa.org for more. And if you want to get in touch with us, ask a question or suggest a topical guest, drop me a line at hello at fanengagement.net. And uh, episode links are in the podcast description. Please like, subscribe and share. It really does help our visibility in a crowded podcast world. Give us an idea, a, a run through of what, of what it, of what that ten years was like. I mean, a kind of helicopter view, I think, is probably the term, isn't it? <laughs> mm? How long have you got? Well, you know, as long as you need, really. Um, I mean, I joined the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust Board in 2013. Um, I had been a member of the trust for several years, but a fairly inactive member paid myself and didn't really go to any meetings um but i knew through spurs match attendance a guy called down alexander who i yeah. knew you care yeah uh, and down had been on the trust board for seven years and had stepped off in order to lead the we are n17 protest yes. group yes. against the move to stratford that, uh, that was one of daniel's master plans uh, to take us into the year the next stage of, uh, of our iteration. That, that Daniel being Daniel, Daniel Levy, obviously, not exactly. Daniel. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so Darren, Darren Alexander was ready to get back involved with the trust and he needed some help in certain skill sets. And my day job, uh, marketing and comms. Yeah. So um, he asked me if I'd get involved. So basically, I got involved in 2013 purely to do the marketing side of things. Uh, didn't really think that I had any experience. Didn't really think supporter activism was for me. Mm. in inverted commas. I, I'd never been involved in anything like that before, maybe done a bit of student politics, but thought it was for other people and I was mm. just going to stick to my professional lane. Um, but Darren passed away, sadly, about a year after I joined the Trust Board, which was a matter of weeks after Martin, who's also here, Martin Cloak, joined the Trust Board. And that left both of us in a situation where we needed to step up 
and try and steer the organization. So I'd only had about a year's experience of attending meetings with Daryl and like taking notes and meeting people, but not really contributing that much. <laughs> it was a massive learning curve. Yeah. So we ended up between Martin and myself, co-chairing the organization for seven years from 2015 until 2022. <laughs> um, I think the, the first thing that we did, because we're both communication specialists, was make sure that we actually had a website and that we had control of our database and that we could communicate with our existing members, but also use social media platforms and channels that were available to us to try and attract new members, particularly maybe a younger demographic uh, who weren't aware of the trust or had misconceptions as to what the trust would be about. Um, so that was one of the very first things we did. And then obviously try and place ourselves as a credible enough organisation to get back into the room with the executive board at Tottenham Hotspur, mm -hmm. um, we actually managed to do that for, again, around you know seven or eight years. We managed to hold regular meetings with their entire board and our entire board, funnily enough called board to board meetings, and they were three times a year. And we touch on everything from their strategy and their vision and their ambition. I mean, the, the trust remit, Martin might want to go over that later, but the trust remit's mainly off field. So uh, contrary to what a lot of our supporters may may think, you can't go in there and bang on the table and insist that you sign Messi or that you mm. sack one of your current players. It, mm. it, is, it is mainly off field and the governance and the organisation and fan engagement and all that kind of stuff. So we managed to position ourselves as a credible enough organisation to get inside that room and to hold them account which I think we're pretty proud of. Uh, that continued until April 2021. We'll come on to that later. Um, I think I personally tried to make, make it my business to really specialise in all those match day touch points. So anything that you needed to enjoy a match as a match going fan. So whether that was you needed transport to get to the stadium, you needed a ticket, mm. uh, you needed to make sure that you were safe when you were there, that the stewarding was acceptable, that you had access to food and beverage, mm. whatever it might have been. So they were all the kind of touch points that I specialised in and developed a lot of skills around the area over the past decade, really. So I mean, I'm talking too long, Martin, you can step in. What, what, give, give some more an overview of 10 years at the trust. It's a long time. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess the kind of where it started. I mean, I sort of, I didn't really want to get involved, um, which is probably a, a feeling familiar to, to a lot of people. Um, I, I, I've, I've been a, a trade unionist for, for most of my working life, so I've, I've kind of chaired union branches and regional branches. I was on the National Executive of the Journalist Union for a few years. Um, so I was kind of used to that, that side of organisation. And what, one of the reasons I didn't particularly want to get involved in, in football support and politics, if you want to call it that, was because I, I, I kind of did that through my day job. Mm. What, you know, football was, was my leisure activity, the thing that I did to, to get away with stuff. But um, I, I've always, uh, you know, much to the annoyance of lots of people that I've met, I've always said what I thought and been quite opinionated. And I've always had the... Uh, the view that you can't just talk about things, you've actually got to try and do things as well. So um, I, I had been a member of, of one of the organisations that came before the Trust, which is an organisation called the Tottenham Independent Supporters Association uh, in the 1990s. And that, that kind of arose out of the campaign that had gone on way back in the, in the, in the, the ownership period of Irving Scholar at Spurs. So we're going back quite a few years now. When he built executive boxes on the on the on the shelf terrace, which was the bit where the, it was like our end, uh, and there was uproar about this, but it was almost this kind of like iconic, you know, this is the kind of Thatcherite new business model, and it was kind of putting the the posh people's 
area on, on, on where the ordinary fans went as well. So there was a, there was a kind of fan protest over that and, uh, and a, a group called Left on the Shelf was formed, um, which wasn't a political moniker. It was a group of fans who wanted to be left to stand on the shelf. He wasn't left politically. And a scholar was obsessed with them being some sort of bunch of Trotskyists or whatever. Um, Although there were some Trotskyists involved, as, as they were <laughs> uh, in, in most places, um, but more more of that later, readers and listeners. Um, so that that had kind of once that that kind of battle had, had gone on, and there was a sort of partial victory where there was there was a, a section of the shelf was retained, which we all knew unofficially as the ledge. So it was a kind of narrow bit <laughs> at the front of the old shelf, in front of the executive boxes. Um, people, and this was around about the time that the fanzines were starting to be mm. produced, and fans are starting to say. And this was kind of in the aftermath of, 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 of Heisel, really, and, and the whole kind of hooliganism thing that kind of came out of the 80s. And a lot of football fans are saying, well, look, we're not all hooligans and we don't want to be treated as if we are. But also, we care a lot about our clubs. And so fans, mm. it, you know, fans have been organising themselves you know, since really the 60s. Um, and, and, and slightly before that, if you want to go back into the whole kind of history. But there has been fan organisation before, but on a kind of a wider scale as we know it today. People started off in, in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, publishing our own fanzines, forming our own organisations and challenging the old sort of official supporters clubs, if you like, yeah. which were kind of just kind of organising coach travelling, isn't, mm. isn't the club great sort of things. Uh, and it was controversial because fans don't necessarily take kindly to their club being criticised. But I think the independent movement, if you want to call it that, and where mm. the FSA originally came out, said, look, you know, we've got things to say. The clubs are the people that are running the game might not always get it right. Uh, and um, we, we need to kind of push. So I was kind of, because of my politics and my, my trade unionism, kind of sympathetic to that, but never particularly got involved in it. And I don't think that my kind of political outlook particularly is reflected in, in our fan base necessarily, though it's always difficult to, mm. to, to generalise. Um, so I kind of stayed away from it a little bit, though I was involved with the Independent Supporters Association. I, I, I produced a fanzine with some mates for a few years. Um, and in 2001, when Supporters Direct was, was set up, uh, which of course you'll know about, Kev, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the whole thing of, of forming Supporters Trust, which is the kind of next stage, if you like, so it's a kind of move, if you mm -hmm. like, from opposition groups to, well, actually, can we take a part in trying to run our clubs? And at the time, most fans could think maybe we'll be able to, to team up and, you know, sort of raise some money and buy our club. So that's, you know, not that long ago, but, but a lifetime ago, really, in terms of where the game's got to now. I was involved with, with talking to a few of the existing groups, and there are a number of different support groups as Spurs are saying that we all need to come together. This is a, this is a good idea. It was something that the Blair government have put forward. It's kind of classic third-way politics, if you like. Um, we need to try uh, and, and form one organisation and try and sort of take on the, uh, you know, a bit of responsibility and challenge the club in this way. So the trust was formed and I then kind of stepped back and then got involved really at the time when, when, when Katz just said, when it, it kind of become a little bit moribund. Uh, at, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, Which is the club club. Yes, yeah, so, well, there was a campaign yeah, about yeah. secondary ticketing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the club didn't have an in-house ticket exchange. Um, they were using, yeah. as we said, the secondary platform, StubHub, which was basically legalised touting. Yeah. So um, Martin was part of a coalition along with the trust 
because um, Martin was, believe it or not, an influencer, I think would be called that, on social media and God various forums. Uh, and so Martin was one of the campaigners against StubHub. And it was, uh, I think we worked together initially when you weren't part of the trust on that yeah. campaign. Uh, and then you joined the trust board on the back of Using yeah. interactions. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think that was, but you know, I kind of pushed quite hard for the for the trust to kind of get involved in that, and it just kind of got to the stage where I just thought that instead of just kind of criticising from the sidelines or, mm. or kind of having lots of opinions, I need to get you involved. And then, of course, when when Darren passed away, there was a bit of a kind of a vacuum at the at the, at the top of the organisation, and kind of Kat said, look, you know, we need to, either we're serious about this or we're not, but I'm going to need some help here. And I think it was my kind of experience at the sort of kind of chairing and organizational side, if you like, mm. uh, which went together with, with, with Cat's marketing experience. And but you know we had to learn a huge amount over the years as well. But we I think we had a fairly clear idea from the start about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. And one of the things was to try, which we might come and sort of say that you don't necessarily have to be a professional activist or fan rep to do this well. You just need to have the passion and know what you're doing and be prepared to put the work in. And I think that's the challenge. That it, it, I think you both of us have known the amount of time that it took up. Mm. Aside from all of the other stuff, which we might talk about later on, but we might have gone, actually, we're not going to get involved in it. So it's a sonic... Well, not a diversion, okay. it sort of, in a way, becomes a bit difficult to step away for a lot of people, doesn't it? Almost, I wouldn't say addictive, but it's hard yeah. to say, okay, I'm walking away. And I used to counsel a lot of people on walking away from club boards, walking away, I still do sometimes, from trust boards, because they were absolutely evidently exhausted. And they needed to understand sometimes that if the organisation did fall over, then there was a problem with the organisation and not with the way they ran it. And if they couldn't hold it all together themselves, that wasn't their fault. That's you, not in the people I would be talking to anyway. And that's you found it hard to get away from it, haven't you? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I'll be the first person to stick a hand up and say, I suffer massively from caretaker syndrome. And I also was, when I say obsessed with a legacy, that makes me sound like a right big head. And I don't mean it like that. But we've already established that the real catalyst for me getting involved was Darren. And so when he passed yeah. away, I knew how important the trust was to him. Yeah. And for our, all that time on that board, I carried his legacy with me. Yeah. And every time I'd make a decision, he always said to me, you know, you make a mistake, don't worry, just don't make the same mistake twice. Mm-hmm. And always do what you feel in your heart, just stay true to yourself. Mm. And I can absolutely hold my head up and say that I did that at every single point over those 10 years. But I was very conscious that I was mm. carrying almost his expectations with me. And so it became quite personal for me as well, which Mm. isn't necessarily a healthy place to be in, but it meant that I really wanted to make sure that when I stepped away, that would thrive. Mm. And it is very difficult to find people with as much drive as (laughs) myself, because I think we're outliers. The amount of effort we put into that, we run it as if it was our day jobs. Everything was 100% professional. Uh, You're not going to match that. And so I found it extremely difficult to try and step away. And it's been, I set off the board in February when I'm in June, uh, but we stepped down as co-chairs last July. Uh, so we're almost a year away from being co-chairs. And only about now can I look at their feed on social media or can I read a newsletter and not be like, not get, done it like that. Not get triggered. <laughs> not get triggered, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think the movement has a way of, trapping you and keeping you in it both of us are still involved and come on to more of that later when it's not involved at club level but yeah. i think that's part that's part of what 
being involved in something like this is, isn't it? That you don't just do it for that particular moment in time. You do it because you think it's important and you want to leave something behind. You know, what I was always told as a trade unionist was leave some organisation behind, set something up. Uh, and it's difficult. And saying, you know, cats for it, we did, we did tend to kind of push a lot and, and kind of run it like a day job. And you could say, well, then you were stupid, weren't you? But the point that you've got is that if you're going to go into a meeting, for example, with someone like Daniel Levy, Whatever you think about him, you've got to know what you're talking about. You've got to have done your homework. You've got to make sure that you're really prepared because he doesn't suffer fools gladly. Um, so you have to go in there. Uh, and, you know, the people that you're dealing with, you know, at Premier League level, you know, you've got, you know, people like Bill Bush, for example, who is the, who, you know, we had a decent relationship with, but Bill, you know, used to work for, for Tony Blair, you know, he's one of Tony Blair's spin doctors. So he's dealt with stuff at that level and was then working at the Premier League, Scudamore was a pretty formidable person to go into meetings with. And we we then found, we never planned this, but we found ourselves going into meetings with people like this. And you've got to put the work in. You've got to know what you're talking about. Otherwise, they're going to yeah. completely wipe the floor with you. What we perhaps should also have said was one of the very first things we did was was join um, Supporters Direct, which is where we first met you, Kev, and um, the FSF as it was, because we were determined, no clubs in Ireland, no supporter group can be in Ireland either. Mm -hmm. It's all an ecosystem. And we were determined to play our part in the national and yeah. as it later transpired the european picture as well i think that was massively important mm -hmm. and that peer group and that peer-to-peer -peer learning and those national campaigns i think really helped to identify us as a trust as well and really helped to contribute into making the landscape more favorable for match going fans yeah we made some country. really good friends there I yeah mean, you know so with uh, you know at other clubs i mean funnily enough the first two people you met were, were, were the chelsea and arsenal reps and you yes. said like you know i don't want to meet anybody but i don't know where we're keep you away from them <laughs> well, that was an, uh, i mean that was something certainly in in um around sort of 2010 or so i think um and i'll just from my perspective i saw when it was when supporters direct was was there i saw um the value of that in being um it was partly a just a, a natural development of what brian lomax always said because every club further down work all, all the supporters trust further down worked together always um regardless of who you know rovers and city but you know with bristol Rovers and bristol city work together um you know mansell town and Notts county work together Chesterfield, actually, probably, it's probably Chesterfield and not. Um, and so it was a natural extension of that anyway. And um, why shouldn't it apply to to the so-called big clubs? I always like to preface it with so-called big clubs because they are at the moment. They're not always in, you know, forever. Absolutely. Um, and also, I think it was um, at that point for me, it was also a kind of protective measure for us as an organisation. I felt that way. That the bigger our network, the the the, the less um under attack i felt we might become might be from people who didn't want us around because i think supporters direct was a particular nuisance um well beyond the nuisance because we were very um focused on the po sort of policy and the regulatory sphere um we could what we did tended to result in very substantial change of things mm -hmm. even though even though at the time you might not realize it you know, if you look at some of the major regulatory changes, probably yeah, most yeah, of them yeah. have tended to come through the work of our members and our, mm -hmm. our organisations. And so that was important for me as well. And once we'd got that, you know, once that relationship started to blend, that's when you started to see when the Scousers get on board and the Manx are working with the Scousers and the Liverpool, the, yeah. the, the, the Arsenal and Tottenham fans are working together and the Chelsea fans are working together. You're going, well, it's a bit harder for 
um, people to oppose us now, really. As, and then you start looking at it as a, well, what can we, <clears throat> what can we actually achieve now as a, as a sort of mo a trust movement at the time, and I suppose a fans movement now. Um, and then you, and then you realise, well, you, an independent regulator. You can start to argue about the, the content of that and, and whether you think it's sufficient and whether, like me, you think that the sheer disruption created by a regulator is going to is going to make massive change possible, or whether you think actually that the regulations are what really matter um, immediately. The point is, is we got there, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to happen. Um, there's, there's, there's a human thing, isn't there, as well? That, that there's a cliche about you know there's more that, that we've got in common than that. Yeah. But if you're talking to other people and they're having the same problems with ticketing or bad stewarding or bad policing or Kickoff times or ticket pricing or whatever, then you're going to make that that kind of common connection. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't mean that the edges are still there. There's a load mm. of it's a horrible word, but there is a load of banter that still goes on. There's a lot mm. of one-upmanship because that's the nature of it. But it's a sports compared Martin, to wasn't that, that halcyon age, which was around 2015, yeah. 2016, mm. when you had Jay McKenna at Spirit of Shankly, mm. you had Duncan Glasgow right. at Manchester United. Uh, you had Tim Rolls at Chelsea, mm -hmm. uh, we were in, and Tim Payton at Arsenal. And it's not a coincidence that all of all of these people were, well, part of us obviously, were incredible and very energetic. Well, I'll, 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 really I'll hard. say and it. And we ended up with a £30 price gap. You know, it's, yeah, not, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not a coincidence. Yeah. Well, I'll these say, it from, I'll say it from my perspective is, is that the, the work that we, and it was us that established the Premier League group and, and got the conversation going about it wasn't our area of work but i but i i think it needs to be understood that that ticket price campaign had been written and was sat there on a shelf and it was the group of premier league trust that yes. we'd established yeah. that then started making that possible so for me as well um the one sort of one of the comforts i have if you like because i was always clear that i preferred to keep an independent supporters direct the the com one of the comforts i have is that um we provoked change within the FSF as well. Mm. We pushed, I mean, ultimately what we did was supercharge fandom and fan activism. Yeah. And that's the reason we're in the position we're in. It was an opportunity to bring new people in, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think that, that's when you always get change. And I mean, I think two of the yeah. really influential people yeah. in that campaign from the grassroots were Jay McKenna yeah. at Liverpool and Dan Alexander. And they were yeah. both yeah. really different people, not just because one was from London and one was from Liverpool, but Jay's very much trade union tradition. And he's a young guy, but, you know, sort of now regional organiser for the TUC came through that. Darren wasn't at all. He was a really, really down-to-earth, earthy football fan as well. Yeah. But both of them said, we need to we need to do something about this. Yeah. Ticket pricing is an issue. Yeah. Uh, I and, should and mention Dave yeah. Kelly as well. Yeah, Dave Kelly at Everton yeah. as well, yeah. yeah. But, but there was different kind of groups of people got together. But it, it was an opportunity for, for you know, if you like, a new generation, new people that have never yeah. really been that involved before uh, to, to get in there. I mean, that, that's still one of the big victories. But the, the classic on that, that we just thought, you know, when that was announced, because I can remember Daniel Levy wagging his finger over a table of me at board meetings saying the Premier League will never agree to cap prices. So, so they'll agree what works yeah. for them. Yeah, that's, yeah. So, that's, that's, we, know, the we know it's a technical thing, but when yeah. that was announced, yeah. we thought, well, yeah. this is the breakthrough because nobody yeah. can now say yeah. that there is no point getting involved in support organisations because this is what we've done. And you know what a lot of fans said? They would have done that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, that's kind of how so, everything happens in any kind of policy. So get away. Well. well, there you go. So this is the bit that I think people maybe it's useful to talk about is is ultimately, um, and I talk about this with what I do. I mean, obviously, I'm now on the, um, on the board of the Don's Trust, 
um, I'm a director there. So, you know, we're overseeing the ownership of Wimbledon. Um, but ultimately, every, my personal view on all of this is if someone wants to get elected and stand, stand for the board of their trust, whatever their trust is doing, uh, and I do mean particularly supporters trust because of the type of role they play in the sort of holding clubs to account when it comes to governance and decision making, that sort of stuff, is ultimately this is politics, right? It's, it's, it's sort of street politics, it's local organisations, some of them have much higher profiles because of what they attach themselves to in your mm. case, you know, it certainly likes to see itself as a multinational sports organisation, mm. <clears throat> but perversely obviously still mm. a very rooted localised organisation in another sense, which is where obviously where clubs struggle mm. with the identity. But it is ultimately about politics and it's ultimately about persuasion, it's about, um, uh, it's about balancing egos priorities about dealing with authority and persuading them sometimes knowing when to metaphorically pull the trigger when not to pull the trigger just you know in that sense you were met you know you were meeting a, a fella who you know, i was reading his biography and or I was reading a biographical piece about him in the athletic the other day um he he's um he's an interesting bloke i've never met him um but obviously very high performing in one sense clearly has some difficulties in others and that piece is worth a read how how was that sort of every you know all the time being in the room with that person i mean you say preparation i mean a lot of it is also reading people isn't it and understanding that sometimes actually you might just be in a bad mood and getting that <laughs> that actually that bloke on the other side there he sits in the stand every week and people look at him and go you know can't cannot connect the idea that he's a human being but that's one of the major parts which for me is and and i'm I'm assuming it's for you that you were sat opposite another person albeit that they had we were sat opposite daniel levy but uh, but uh, you know that stories tend to get told around personalities don't they there there is more maybe he would not be saying this there is more to Tottenham Hotspur than daniel levy you know there are other board members and there are people we had relationships with with the other members of the board, we had relationships with heads of departments. So it wasn't just uh, yeah. three times a year we sat down with Daniel Levy and the board, had a chat, and then everybody went away. That we, you know, we we would probably be on the phones of the support liaison officer, the security officer, whatever, a couple of times a week, you know. And that was again part of the, the work that was going on. So there was everyday stuff, and then there was strategic stuff, which is the stuff that Daniel yeah. would be in a discussion. Just about. to just to get in there, because I'm, you know, Jonathan Waite, who sat, you know, sadly went far too soon. Um, as, as with that, Darren, um, you know, he's absolutely brilliant. How much easier is your job when you've got someone like that there, not not wishing to criticise anyone who is there? And I communicate regularly with the SLO. Hello. Um, anyway, he's always very helpful to my compiling data. But yeah, a lot. Um, but it works both ways as well. I think that it was useful and helpful for Jonathan that he has such an active and knowledgeable trust as well. Mm. So, but from our point of view, hugely, because he really understood, as you said, the politics. It's worth throwing in there that he, now he was a, he's a QPR fan. Yes. Um, He was a trust activist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, QPR first. first. So he got, he was kind of came from us. Oh, totally, absolutely, absolutely. He understood Mm. how you worked a back channel as well. Mm. So he would phone us up off the record and say, I'm getting people's backs up with this. So maybe you want to approach it a different way. If you thought of this, 
So he'd give us a bit of off-the-record strategic advice and a bit of a steer. And then we kind of do the same with him. And it was a great relationship because he understood that not everything has to be well, so, so, in so, formal meetings. So, you know and, it's I mean? also, and it's also the thing, and it was the thing that I think frustrated me over the years from time to time. I always tried to, 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 to help supporters trust, especially when they sort of took control of clubs or in the, ended up in a very influential position is to move from oppositionalism because it is very tempting to, to be opposing and or not even that actually but to see yourself as as, as other mm. and to see them as somehow you know is a bit kind of mill owner worker and it's not because ultimately if you're persuading them that this institution kind of belongs to me even if mm. I don't actually own it then and if I do own it then I have a right to say what I want and you should be listening to me mm. Then, um, then it, then it's. I kind of lost my train of thought there. But you see what I mean. I, I, mean, see, I a, think at, at every point throughout the ten years when we were leading the trust, we were working on multiple work streams. There was a myriad of things going on. There'd be somewhere we were in outright opposition mm. to the club. There'd be somewhere we were fully aligned with them. So, for example, the work that we did migrating the fans to Wembley during the mm. stadium build, and not Milton Keynes, and not Milton Keynes, as we mm. campaigned. Mm. For Wembley, as opposed to campaigning against Milton Keynes, but let's be honest, Very we campaigned against Milton Keynes. Uh, all of that period, I think we delivered some really valuable and great work because by that stage, we managed to manoeuvre ourselves into that trusted, recognised, independent fan group where they would come to us first for an opinion. So either Jonathan would float something past us or Donna would, etc., or whatever. I mean, let's be straight. Daniel didn't pick up the phone to us. No. He wasn't the board director. He no. was charged with fan engagement. It just wasn't his bag. Uh, perfectly pleasant in the meetings, but mm. that mm. wasn't what he did, and I don't mm. believe to this day it's ever what he will do. Um, so we would, you pick your you pick your battles. Yeah. So you, if it, you can't ever move yourself into outright opposition because there'd be stuff that you'd be working on for the betterment of fans. And that's also what the difference with a trust was, and I mean it's something that became a big issue probably in the last you know two or three years of when we were doing this, and it, it is still an issue now. So you know the the, the, the the, the traditional thing that happens at football clubs in this country is that you know a club hits the rocks and the fans shout sack the board mm. uh, and you get rid of the board and then a new usually guy comes in and says that I'm going to take you to the moon and back and then it turns out that he was known through his teeth and then the fans have to buy the club because it goes bankrupt or whatever you know that there's a there's a story there there isn't there as well but the sack the board is is the initial thing now that becomes more complicated when you've got clubs which are effectively multinational businesses. And a lot of football clubs still aren't as big businesses as they would like us to think they are, but they're much bigger than they used to be as well. The, the trust was in a, in, in a position where we were, trusts are formally constituted organisations, they're community benefit societies. And one of their constitutional objectives is the well-being of the football club. Mm. So one of the arguments that we had with a lot of our fans, and they were an increasingly vociferous minority, and I still think it's a minority, but it's it's quite a large minority who are saying, sack the board, get rid of Daniel Levy, get rid of Enoch, they're not taking the club anywhere, mm. get them to go. And our position as a trust had to be, right, we argued this really, really vehemently, and I still believe this is true, other people disagree. Our position had to be, we cannot just say sack the board because mm. what we're effectively saying is there will be no leadership of this business and whether we like it or not, football clubs are businesses now. Mm. And so therefore, we will go out of business and is that what you want? Now, if another potential owner comes up and says, look, I've got this great plan, 
And this is what's happening at Manchester United. The supporters trust there have said they put forward a supporters charter. And they said, anybody who buys the club, we want them to sign up to these principles. Mm. This is the kind of football club we would like our football club to be. And that's the role of a trust. Now, that doesn't sit well with a lot of people because it's a horrible word nuance, isn't it? It's a nuanced position. Mm. And for most people, it's like, are you for them or are you against them? Do you mm. want them gone or not? You can't sit on the fence. But it's not sitting on the fence. Mm. I think that it's just, it's posturing to just say, and I got had a go at, you know, I was ridiculing, I was, I was putting people down. But there is no other way of saying it. If you are just saying sack the board and there is nobody else to come in and you're saying your club mm. should be the leader, it is just posturing because you know it's not going to happen. And if it does happen, you're not going to get what you want because what you want isn't if your club goes out of business. I think there was, sorry, Kat, come on. No, I was going to say, but I, I think it's also um, difficult when you're a membership organisation because you need to reflect the mandate of your members. So mm. one of the things that we were very keen, obviously, to make sure was that we were always in touch with our membership. So whether we that was through our surveys, through our meetings, through a forum, through social, whatever, we'd make off to the people that came up to us, <laughs> you were people who came up to us at every single match. Uh, we would want to know what the temperature was on any subject, uh, particularly something as hot as ownership mm. or, you know, directorship. And I think you've got an issue if the majority of your membership then decide that they do actually want you to call for them all to go. Yeah. That, because, well, because funnily enough, this also happened to us. But then let's also... Um be you know be honest here is with people is that um there are some people who mistakenly think when they join an organization like that and they elect you that they that they have delegated you to do things and they haven't delegated you to do things they have and it's this it's the tradition we have in this country of elected mostly apart from obviously sometimes in trade union uh, and party politics where they do delegate people to do something under yeah. order we are there to make judgments about things yes. and we have to be able to explain yeah. that sometimes yeah. you have to take a leadership position so there's some really interesting examples just just from the, the history of the sports trust and you know yes you are you've got to take people with you so you don't take a position where you're not fairly sure that there's a there's a there's a good chunk of support what you also don't do is say everyone's saying this on Twitter because Twitter isn't everybody. Or everyone said this in the pub because the pub isn't everybody as well. Okay. Sometimes you have to take position. If if it's if it's if it's on a on a knife edge, then you're probably best not to take a really hard position because you don't know mm. if you're going to get get the back in. You have to be prepared for people to then to say you took the wrong decision, so we're going to get rid of you. Uh, and if most of our membership had said we want you to campaign to to sack the board now, we would have had to, or I would have had to stand down because I couldn't I couldn't argue for that position and belief. Right at the, one of the reasons why the trust was moribund when, when Kat and, and Darren stepped in is because of that whole argument when Daniel was going to move the club to, to Stratford. Now, there's still a theory that it was just a ruse to put pressure on having the mm. council to get a better deal mm. on the current site for the stadium. That's all history now as well. But the position of the trust at the time was some fans want to go to Stratford and some fans don't, so we can't take a position. Now, that isn't sustainable. You know, you're either going to go there or you're not going to go there. You're either going to agree with going there or not. So you have to then choose, you know, what, what are people out there thinking? But maybe a lot of people are going to disagree with us. We had a similar thing over Milton Keynes. We opposed the club moving to Milton Keynes and the club played a cup game. The only game that Spurs have played in its history since 1882, which isn't within a hundred, a few hundred yards of the lamppost where it was, where it was, uh, it was signed. 
Wembley, we sort of say, is kind of still North London. <laughs> you just but, don't uh, have that. that. That was probably the most, the most divisive thing because a lot of our fans said, like, I don't really care about some dispute between Wood and MK Dons. You know, we, if we need to play out there, we'll play up there. Mm. Now, we, we, as part, we took our position in the national movement seriously and we argued for that. Mm. If we'd have thought that no fans had supported it, we couldn't have said that. But we said, in the end, well, as a board, we're not going to attend the game. You make your own decision. Again, that could be seen as a cop-out, but you, you, know, you have to take the temperature of your membership and you have to take a position based on that. But deciding that you can't take a position mm. on something that's really important isn't an option. It's also important to remember when you would have seen this probably a lot more than we did. You don't have to take a position on every single thing. You know, that's the kind of Trotsky's politics, isn't it? What's your line on, you know, this and that, you know? And it's like, well, actually, I don't really know. But it doesn't matter whether I've got a line on that because I'm not going to affect it. Yeah. Great. No, sorry. That that's you've, <laughs> you've um. Isn't that what Trotskyists do? They kind of they they usually kind of round uh, up I'm the point. Then you, then you have nothing, then you have nothing to else to say. He's ended the meeting. No. Um. Well, no. So well, no. So the, the, the biggest um thing that 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 people will be looking at, thinking about, <clears throat> is the fact that you did refuse to talk to the um. I'm not putting that down as a sort of statement, um, throwing my pen down, by the way. But you did say we're not going to carry on having these we meetings also after for the, the ESL. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 why, so, no, so why that. was that? Where, so where did you about, get Where did you get with the, this? The story that about that, 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 this point? that we, because we were, and it's not boasting, it's just a fact, and, and it, you know, we weren't as... Uh, it doesn't know, matter what it's called. Manchester United are an incredibly organised spirit check and So we were one of the more organised trusts in the country. And we've been asking for a good 18 months at the regular meetings we had with the board, are you taking part in any discussions about any kind of European Super League? Because the rumours are swirling around. Uh, and as usual, the kind of club gave you basic answers, and we ended up trying pin them down and we pin them down and they said no we're not and it turned out that they had been so we were in a really difficult position then. um <laughs> so, so we're now in a position where we go to our members and we say well we have these meetings with the, the board at the club uh, and it's really really important that we go into those meetings and it's really important that you take notice of what goes on there because that's where we put the pantries forward and they'd say but they tell you lies so what's the point of the meeting Right. So the club had undermined something and we were mm. livid about it because they'd undermined something that, that we'd spent years building up. And they'd also put effort into that as well. Yeah. You know, well, lots well, of people, you know, lots yeah. of people, yeah. not just the board. Into that, but we couldn't, yeah. that, that, it, it wasn't credible to say, well, let's carry on having these meetings because people would have said, well, they just go in, you know, we already used to get there. Oh, you're only there because you get tea and biscuits off the board or yeah. whatever, which we only got in the first meeting, I think, didn't we? And we, we got cheese board. We got cheese board as well, yeah. but yeah. nothing else, you know, after that. Um, so we, we we couldn't credibly go into those meetings and say they were worth anything. So at well, that stage, we said, that, yeah. Mark, it was all saying that we had been very, we'd already mandated our membership and the mm. wider Spurs fan base. Mm. And there was a very resounding no yeah. to the principle of a European Super League. Yeah. And we'd obviously been the conduit and given them that information. Mm. They knew how opposed we were. Mm. We'd put it in writing as yeah. well. But they, they knew best. Yeah. And, yeah. and they took none of that on board. Yeah. So not only were they not honest and, and truthful, and they will say they were under confidentiality mm. agreements mm. and it was commercially mm. sensitive and whatever else, 
not only did well, they not give us the 100% truth, let's say, they knew how the fan base well, was Well, that was classic Spurs, wasn't it? And they, they, I think they really did understand why we were angry, but the, the, the official excuse they came up with for why they couldn't tell us that they were doing this thing that they said they weren't doing was because the lawyers said that they couldn't tell anyone. And it's like, you've kind of missed the point here. You shouldn't have been in the effing conversation in the first place. It doesn't matter what the lawyers are saying. Exactly. But of course, you know, they, 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 Spurs are always the victims, actually, that board. <laughs> you know, nothing is ever anybody else's fault. It's always that the rest of the world has been nasty and ganged up on them and let them down. So that's the problem that yeah. we had. So it was the it was the credibility of the meetings which we could put on with with as well. But we didn't refuse to talk to them. We were still having the conversations. We said we can't go back into that same forum, right? And it's at that point that the move towards what is now, you know, the fan advisory board and the FLR, there's a whole another probably a whole podcast about that as well but wow. what came out of the the, the, the debacle around the esl the collapse of that was the government finally said you know a non-interventionist conservative government said the game can't run itself we've got to get involved here right? and and that review was launched so if that that's where that process started but we were like a microcosm yeah. of that weren't we here is where and we had one of the better relationships mm. with our board. well i used to use you as much difficult oh we really used to, but, but, they, but the board but, blew it up. But but we, also, so we got criticised by some of our own fans as well for not going back into those meetings. We would have been criticised by other fans for going into well, those meetings. Let, let's just, we had let's, to put, let's put this plainly. Um, you know, when when we say um, the fans told us to stop going and then the fans told us to go, we all are, we're always aware that that's a proportion of, of the group yeah. you're talking about and that some people have said it and some other people have said mm. it. They're probably different groups of people, and then that's about the judgment, isn't it? Right? And you look at it and say, well, we can't possibly carry on because it's yeah. very evident that it's yeah. not popular, but and all, we've trust has been broken. I don't want it to sound like we just threw our toys out of the pram no. because they'd no. not been honest mm. in the in the relationship that we thought there was some some trust and honesty. It was also because of the damage to the reputation mm, of yeah, Tottenham yeah. Hotspur. Let's not forget at that time. The Premier League were threatening point deductions. They were threatening yeah. expulsion from the league. Yeah. There was all like seven shades yeah. of hell was going to yeah. land on their shoulders. And we needed to make a call to try and distance our club from the people who've made mm. that decision yeah. to try yeah. and protect yeah. it from what was coming so down the line. So it wasn't it. us being total mm. prima donnas. Oh, you lied to us. We can't meet with you again. It was like, what do we do about yeah. this? And that's the maybe the opportunity for Joe Lewis to say, look, yeah. you know, to the people that were running his asset, that you, you've screwed it's up screwed here and, and I'm going to remove somebody else in. I, I look back at it and go, were we stupid to believe that the Premier League, because the Premier League bottled it, and they <laughs> didn't punish any of them as well. The reason that I believe that they wouldn't bottle it is because unlike anything that had been done before, where, you know, the Premier League, you've said this a lot, is, is not a, a, some other organisation, it's the 20 clubs and that's it. But what happened is that those six clubs, if they'd have got their way, they would have completely destroyed the business model that the other 14 clubs and those six clubs benefited from. All that money, mm. that's all gone. You, you're not having it anymore. That's why I certainly believed, and we as a board discussed this, we believed that the Premier League was absolutely serious. If you're making that amount of money and somebody tries to make sure that you're not, you're going to go after them, aren't you? Mm. You're going to make sure you mm. set an example. Now, for reasons best known to themselves, 
the Premier League, if effectively they, they say they've changed the rules, it won't happen again. All they've said is that you know how much you're going to get fined. Well, because, also, because also it comes back to the point that it's an organisation of 20 clubs, but then also the politics within that are that those six are very powerful still. Yeah. yeah. So although it's always quite but ironic. Enough of the other 14 always yeah. thought they could join the six. And so yeah. it's like everyone can be the president yeah, of the United yeah, States of America, yeah. wasn't it, as well? Yeah. What happened that time is that the six the basically two-fingered the other 14 and said, like, we don't it's care. It's a nice way of putting it. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, that's how a lot of people would view it. I think that's probably what, how most What was also say. really encouraging about that, and we took the chance, but it's again back to what Kat said about, about taking a temperature. I mean, we prided ourselves on, you know, we were out there, we, we went to, to matches, we talked to people, but we also were involved, you know, went to the Sports Direct conferences, conference. so we, we thought that we had a fairly good handle mm. on, on what fans thought. And we thought, one of the things that most football fans in this country really value is the pyramid system. And even though you can argue it doesn't really exist anymore and it's been distorted, it's still kind of there. It's, it's kind of battered and bruised and held together with bits of sticky tape and plaster or whatever, mm. but it's still there. And we thought that, that they really value that. And that's why there was such strong opposition to, to the mm. European Super League. Personally, I was really, really encouraged by the strength of the opposition to the mm. ESL. On the basis that, mm. not just that it's not about qualifying on merit, but it's going to destroy the pyramid. Mm. Because I thought, you know, in current times, people have just gone, you know what, you know, we're, we're living in a society that we are, it's, it's finance capital, but those that are going to go to the wall, we've got to go to the wall. So um, we, we kind of knew that. We sort of took an informed chance that fans mm. are going to be angry about this for a number of reasons. One is it's going to destroy the pyramid. And the strength of feeling over yeah. the And it wasn't just so UK-based, it was global. It was global, Because we yeah. had surveyed before and we surveyed after, and huge anti-ESL sentiment for the global top yeah. fan base. The, the, our American fans, because we thought they're probably going to go, what's the big deal we get? Well, you know, let's, 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 and they were like, we, this is not what we support. Something pretty, it's something pretty clear over the years that I've understood, having gone out and done the same job in Europe as well as domestically, is that in a sense, and it doesn't quite work in America, in the United States at the moment, but, you know, this might be something that changes. But certainly very large elements of the culture around football are very common across every nation, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Certainly is it, there is a generally, generally a sort of roughly, I would say, South, South American, European model of how football clubs and fans work as a thing. Yeah. And all right, we have a more complex system because of the way our football came about and, and our pyramid is deeper and broader and all that stuff. But a lot of the concepts are very easily understood and they translate and the game is like that for when, 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 when someone in the US looks at it, they, they, they won't, I don't think they look at um, the NFL and the NBA and the, and the NHL and say, that's like soccer. Soccer is like what they are, what they've got over there in Europe. That's what we and they try to develop the same cultures. It's one so word I think which it's I really use when Tim will do, but it's community. No, absolutely. No, it's there's a sense of that. No, absolutely right. So um, the, the 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 regulator. Okay, now I've already sort of suggested how I see it, and I personally, and I've said this to my students, I've said it to my academic colleagues, people in the industry, um, people on the board at the, at the trust, at the Dons Trust. I've said I think the real from my perspective, the real value in the, in the regulator is the sheer disruptive nature of it, that it means that there are going to be a lot of people having to answer to external authorities, and that immediately changes the dynamic in an industry like that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, in that sense, it doesn't matter what you fill it with, because the actual act of it is the value, is the, is the most valuable thing. But then, of course, we do need to look at what, if, what it's filled with. What are they required to do now? 
I have a view, for example, that I'm less keen on, um, or I see the um, the golden share thing. I see that as less important. I would like a return of of not being able to realise the value of a stadium. You know, let's go back to what it was until the FA decided to let the rule fall away because one of their directors sold the ground to himself. Um, now, there are all sorts of things that are now swirling around. There, there are all sorts of, you know, lots of people are now implementing shadow boards, I think, and I know from speaking to some of them, they're not absolutely sure what it even means because someone just <laughs> wrote it. Someone wrote it down in a report and now we're trying to work out what a shadow board is. Yeah. Um, obviously, all sorts of terminology it's things that I try to frame through the fan engagement index um, because I think they help. But there is just this huge lexicon, this all, a menu of huge menu of choices of things you can do to engage with your fan base. Are there particular things that you look at the regulator and you say, let's forget the forget the financial regulation um, and all that sort of stuff. But when it comes to engagement, are there particular things that you look at and say, well, yeah, I mean, a director on the board is what should really happen mm. or a shadow board. Yeah, possibly. Or, you know, what what do you see as being... I think we could start off by saying that the fan engagement section of the white paper is by far the weakest, which isn't great when Mm. it's meant to have been a fan-led review. So Mm -hmm. I think there's various disappointments in there. Ironic. Martin, do you want to talk a bit to the fan advisory board at Tottenham? Uh, As an example? I I think there's a chance that the the fan advisory board at Tottenham could be a good kind of worst-case bar set too low for the regulator to look at at the end of 12 months and say this isn't the way it should be done. Um, I, I think the importance of a regulator, let's take it from, from the macro rather than micro, that, yeah. that what they've got right is that the regulator isn't going to be winning football. Yeah. I think that's good. Hmm. Uh, I think to, a, to a, an extent you're right, Kev, that it's the mere existence of a regulator who is independent of the game going to be important. Now, one of the rumours is that the, the regulator is going to be part of the Financial Conduct Authority. Um, I, my day job now, I work in, in financial regulation, so that really will make people um, that really will make people switch off. Once we're talking about regulation, mm-hmm. government and, and city as well. But the, 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 the point about any regulation is that you can have as much regulation as you want. Mm-hmm. If the will to deliver on on those basic principles aren't there, people are going to try and find ways to get around it. So that's why you've got a battle. It's good that a regulator is going to be independent, but we need to define what that means. It's good that it's outside the game. Um, I would like to see the regulator have a little bit more teeth. It depends who's in there. Um, we had a football ombudsman for years, yes. and the football ombudsman's job, it seemed, was to <laughs> was to find that the club was right whenever a fan brought a case. There's a new football ombudsman now who actually takes the job seriously, and he says, I'm not always going to find that the club's right, mm. but I'm not always going to find the fans right. I'm going to look at the facts, and I'm going to make a fair judgment, which is what we need. This is what we need the regulators to do, right. is that they need to, to make fair judgments. Now, the regu- there's a challenge for the regulator, because I think most people are quite cynical about this sort of stuff. They say, yeah, you know, there's a, supposed to be a regulator that stops us paying too much from my gas bill, but it's not working out too well at the moment, is it? Um, you know, there's, there's lots of financial regulation in the city, but what about all these scandals? So the regulator's got a choice. Uh, they need to show that it's worthwhile that they're being set up, that there's a lot of effort now. Mm. The rumours are it's going to be properly staffed. It's going to be properly funded. Premier League are absolutely furious because they've got to put some money into it. Um, but, but, but you know, there you go. The industry's got to fund it in some way as well. So for the first maybe year or two years, it's the regulator's job to say it's worthwhile be being here. Uh, and they're going to have to look at all of these individual things that are being set up at each club and say, is that in the spirit of the white paper, the mm. friendly review? Mm. 
or is it not in the spirit of it? And if it isn't, what do I do to move it there? You can't regulate and bang people over the head and say you must do this because in the end they're private businesses. But what you have to do is get into a position to say, if you're not doing this, it's not really going to be very good for your business. And that's a little bit harder. It doesn't buy you Lionel Messi or get the board sacked or get a new left back or whatever. It's a longer game. Well, yeah, I mean, work I mean, the, the thing about private sorry, I'll let you come on, Kat. In a minute. The, the, the thing about private business, as I explain to my students on a regular basis, it's all very well and good claiming yourself to be a private business. But but if um, if I wanted to set up Tottenham Hotspur Mark II across the road, even if I could find the land, I wouldn't be allowed to. I'd have to go all the way up. I'd have to be Harringay Borough. Mm. Um, so, yes, private business. I have to, I always argue they are businesses. They have money in, money out. And the reason they fail is because they have too much money out and not enough money, money in usually, or, or they lose an asset, something financial, something that they don't do properly that a business should do. But obviously, it's very specific, right? And they are ultimately operating in groups of, in cartels. Mm. So, businesses yes, no other. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's an important thing to make the point of. And when it comes to the, just so people know, the ombudsman, who was for years Derek Fraser, wasn't he? Um, uh, is a completely waste, total wasted opportunity. And, and I would say, arguably, in political terms, in terms of the industry, intentionally completely wasted. Yes. Because even when we wrote to him after our club's league place had been handed away, he, he, he said, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Well, that's great. So that's, I can see your reason for existing then. <laughs> so, so, so you, Kat, if I can ask you maybe a little bit more reflecting on the micro of being in the room of the enforcement a bit the exact if you like the ability to enforce um your right to be there if assuming we have regulations that allowed you a right to be there you know how does that work when you've got because ultimately you're dealing with people right and if people say no then it is up to the regulator to intervene but you've still got a relationship to navigate yeah, I mean, that's tricky, isn't it? Thank God that we're not involved anymore, hey? <laughs> um, I mean, I think the, the the FAB at Tottenham, I mean, Martin led this work through for us before he stepped off the board, so he's probably best placed on all, all of this guff more than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my main concern was where does this leave the trust? Where, does this, where do the fabs leave the supporters' trust? Mm. So the supporters' trust at Tottenham has two places on the Spurs fab. And and that now seems to have superseded all of the dialogue with the trust. Now, that's not the same thing as far as I'm concerned. And, well, it isn't. I mean, a, a dialogue with a fab is not the same as a dialogue with an independent supporters trust. Yeah. So that's a concern. I think that's something that the current incumbents of the trust board will have to try and navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that was a massive concern for me. I think we'd worked really hard to make sure that we had expertise and that we were representative as a group, uh, regardless anyway. And now I think that is a major concern as to how you preserve the influence and the uh, you know expertise of people who have served the, the long time on a, on a mm. trust board. I think one thing, a, a minor irritation of mine is at the moment they're running elections for the, um, the Tottenham Fan Advisory Board. And they've had a really healthy number of people who've applied for various posts and I'm like where were all these people when mm. the trust needed needed help mm. you know you're all very willing to go and sit on the club's fab because you think it's a bit of glamour and you get to sit in a room with not even Daniel he's not even going to be there mm. but with the small liaison officer and the executive director but where were you when the trust needed help mm. I find that quite annoying 
And okay. the, the conclusion, yeah. the name as well, yeah. instead, that we, we proposed FAN non-executive directors on the, yeah, board, yeah. On the full yeah. board. Yeah. Yeah. We proposed a shadow, a supporter board. Mm -hmm. uh, what we've got is a FAN advisory board, step uh, which is mm. co-chaired by one of the club's directors. So it's not fully independent. This is not really the model that we were looking at. That's the model that, that we have to go for. The thing at Spurs is that it's wrong to say that they don't care about what the fans think. Uh, they don't mind fan organisations as long as they can control them. And it's all about control at Spurs. As long as it, it, it's, it's very paternalistic. Right. But we've given you this and you should be grateful for that and don't, don't cause too much trouble. They didn't like us particularly. And we got on well with them a lot of the time and we worked together well. But they didn't like it when mm. we disagreed and when we were independent and when we caused trouble. That was kind of our job. It was yeah. our job to challenge yeah. uh, and to do yeah. that. You yeah. know, yeah. and, so, that's a, and, so, that, and what they're trying yeah. to do at the moment is mm. to try and get rid of that. The other problem that we've got is that, and people are finding this right across the country, is that it, it, there has to be a degree of confidentiality in these discussions. If you're going to be sitting and discussing quite detailed business things mm. with, with, with mm. businesses, mm. albeit mm. businesses like no others. You can't then say, well, all of this stuff is going to be reported everywhere, mm. whatever, and especially with the way football is as well. Mm. So there has to be maybe NDAs for some things. There right. has to be confidentiality okay. clauses. But Can I just come back on it? Yeah. So it's an interesting one. No, I, mean, the India, in, in, I mean, I've never, ever found a problem with any um, – I mean, I've heard of a couple – I've rarely, should I say, found a problem, see, heard of many problems with NDAs when it comes to, look, you're going to be in the room discussing stuff, you have to sign an NDA, it's just a requirement. There are some people who, at certain levels of representation, get a bit shirty because perhaps it might be, say, some clubs like Lincoln are one example of this. Rather, and it's what, what I kind of wanted to point to um, with what you were talking about, Kat, about Spurs. It, where they have a sort of variety of different forms of representation and dialogue, which I think is a really valuable way, which is how I measure it in the index, the fan engagement index. So you have the supporters board, you have the director on the board of the club, you have, um, they now having Lincoln, a, a fascinating study in how a private, partially fan-owned football club develops a model. Um, and they listen at all sorts of different levels. And it's essentially a constant series of conversations going on and intelligence gathering on the part of the chief executive, the owners, directors and everything. And so I look at this and sort of think, well, actually, look, there's an, I've never, I've, the maturity issue for me isn't such a problem. It's more that, and I see this at Spurs, you always had a very one dimensional form of dialogue or engagement, which was, well, we'll talk to them. Um, and then I would look, do the research on the index and i'd say so where are the fans oh, no fans from where's the um uh you know the because every every club in the country in the 92 is meant to have a customer charter or a supported charter to call it sometimes club spurs don't they apparently incorporate the, the so i don't understand then that's so who's who's enforcing that regulation there then because that's a regulation right fair enough so it always seemed to me that it was a very sort of singular way of doing dialogue. And actually, they, the variety yeah. variety is good, isn't it? If you it can is. manage it. So they, they had, I mean, in fairness to Tottenham, I will defend them on this point. They had five, four groups that they talked to, officially mm. recognised. Mm. So the trust yeah. is the independent group. Mm. Then um, there's um, Family Whites, which yes. is... Yeah, exactly, the diversity group. Yeah. Then there's Spurs Reach, yeah. which is uh, race, ethnicity, uh, culture and heritage. Mm -hmm. Then there's Spurs Ability, uh, yeah. which is the access disability group. Yeah. Oh, Miss somebody? 
No, no and for four weeks. Yeah, four weeks. And, they, do, and they, they, they will do, talk to all of them. Do it to all of them. Random, right, yeah. Yeah. And they also yeah. have, oh my God, loads of officials of Wars Clubs, which are geographically mm. based. Mm. And they'll run events for them and they mm. will give them opportunities to meet mm. plays and talk to Daniel and do whatever else. Mm. So I suppose you could class that as a kind of. That's yeah, a form of engagement. It's a, a form, form of engagement. engagement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. they, they will run occasional focus groups on key issues whether that's like on the, the y word mm. or on membership propositions or whatever mm -hmm. else um but that's it yeah and it was yeah sounding boards i mm. think yeah, is yeah. Uh, is what they like to see the group well, with stuff it has to be there has to be a level of transparency so that's the balance with with the confidentiality for, mm. for people that fans have got have confidence that, that the stuff that, yeah. you know is being yeah. taken notice of their proper discussions and there, there is there is too much secrecy for my liking around it and again our experience at spurts was that their, their kind of default position was why do we need to tell anybody about anything one of the first battles that cat had to fight and and the ball before i got involved was that one of the re one of a number of reasons why the trust had become moribund was that I used to meet the club, and then six months later, the minutes of that meeting hadn't come out because the club wouldn't agree them. Uh, and Cat and Downey insisted, when we meet with you for these proper meetings, we are going to publish some minutes, which of course we both got to agree and sign off because that's how it works. That doesn't mean censorship. You agree minutes is a true and accurate record, um, but uh, that's going to be out within 72 hours. And that that really made a difference in terms of okay, that's you know pretty instant and that's yeah. it quite, uh, as well. That's quite um, different. And that, now I, I'm not sure where that is at the moment because I'm, I'm not. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> but, uh, at, at last the trust has signed a memorandum of understanding with the club, which we were pushing for for years and they wouldn't want to do. But I, I, unless I've read it wrong, uh, and that this is up on 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 the website in public, the that the club has to agree to sign off the minutes. Now that's we, we spent years fighting for them not to do that and the club would try to insert stuff in there which wasn't part of the discussion we'd say well you can't put that in there because if you'd have said that we would have said this and we used to these ridiculous arguments and in the end we got to the stage that most Tell people do which like yeah, okay this is a pretty accurate representation of what there there's nothing confidential there's nothing that's going to set any hairs running and that's great but i don't think but it's transparency is important i don't yeah. think spurs are particularly unique in not really wanting to give any power away to and you only have to look at yeah. the premier league fan engagement standard mm. so this is why i'm kind of worried because if you look at where we started with the, we presented to tracy crowd which is most of the supporters trusted as part of the flr and we wrote an entire proposal for a supporter board and the whole structure at tottenham as to how that would work which included a ned on the board non-executive director exactly etc um and then yeah. you see where we ended up with the constant dilution month after month after mm. month after month with the premier league's published fan engagement mm. standard it's miles apart mm. from where from the intention and mm. the spirit of the flr dare i say if i if i i don't think it's controversial to say it's always worth recognizing how much Football responds as a political manoeuvre to something mm. rather than it necessarily. I'm not, and I'm not doing down any of the people like you know, um, you know, people I think who do well in in um, in, in in Premier League clubs um, and top clubs to promote fan engagement as a good and an, and an absolute necessity for the business. But a lot of it, from an organisational perspective, mm. is about because they're you know protecting yeah. the organisation right and its members. So, totally. but then that's the very reason we need to regulate it because totally. we need to remove that from their concern mm. too much concern. Yeah. Because I don't think it's mm. I don't think it's fair on them because then it, they will always default mm. very often anyway. And every club I don't agree that it's just the top clubs will default very often to the position of 
what's in my interest yeah, was, as an owner or director. I think the point I was just trying to make was I don't think Tottenham are typical here. No, no I, I don't, I'm not close enough to other clubs, no. fabs, or I, other I can, clubs. I can honestly say and, that yeah. I don't think there is a uniqueness. There are distinct, there absolutely yes. will be distinct things that happen there, slightly different, but looking across the piece, I think, not really. I think there's a, yes. diff, I think there's a difference it's at different levels in the game. And I, and I think that if you want to talk about this, let's say, called top six, and then we're not part of it anymore because we've been this year. Top eight, really can we have top eight? Yeah. Well, Everton were in it I think that the boards at, uh, at Liverpool and Manchester United uh, don't agree any more that the mm. that fans should particularly mm. be involved, but they mm. know that they need to make an effort and they need to talk the talk. Right. Uh, you can almost say that our board are a bit more honest because they just don't believe in it really uh, and their state they control the whole process. I think where the regulator will work better is going to be lower down the league because the imbalance of power is different. So are we going to be able to prevent a Berry or a Derby County or something at Wigan or Southend or whatever? I think it is more likely there'll be more powers there. The problem that we've got at the very top of the game is that imbalance of power and, uh, and the size of the business. And there, there is a lack of political will. And I think that's one criticism that will make of Tracy. But maybe she'll say, well, you've got to pick your battles and, and work out what we take on. Right. Is that that they didn't want to damage the Premier League as this, you know, it's one of the greatest exports of the country, isn't it, as well? So right. do we want to do anything that's actually going to damage the business model, you know, in their opinion? Now, we would argue that it actually strengthens the business model if you have more involvement of the fans, and it's actually mm. us yes. that create that business model anyway, you know, because that old cliche that, you know, if you don't like Tesco's, you go to Sainsbury's. You can't pay the like players if people don't turn up and don't, yeah, exactly. don't pay money to... So I think that, that that's where the difference is, that the, the imbalance of power hasn't really been addressed at the at the top level of the game, and that's probably the Premier League in the top of the Championship. Um, I think further down the leagues, it's, it's easier to do that. Yeah, but yeah. it may be... Yeah. But then that's may, also... Like, say we never could but, but, that. But, but that's also simply because the regulations you bring in will be mostly uniform at certain mm. points in certain areas. Mm. And de facto, by default, that can mm. only have less effect if you're yeah. much bigger and more insulated. Well, let's be honest, the champions are facing 115 charges and not following the rules, aren't they? So, you know, again, what I said earlier, people would go, you talk a lot about regulation, but, you know, what's, what's happened there? I hope you enjoyed that edition of the Fan Engagement Pod. You can sign up to the Fan Engagement Network, catch up with all the latest news, use the Fan Engagement Hub, listen to the back editions of the Fan Engagement Pod and look through previous editions of the Fan Engagement Indexes and more at funengagement.net. And don't forget, if you're involved at any level in fun engagement at a club, we've got the first event of the Fun Engagement Network in the southwest of England on the 26th of July this year. Keep an eye out in your inboxes and our channels for more.